We will be starting in chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I... But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was looking for you, longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We thank you for your great love toward us, for sending your Son down here to earth. God, having seen the example in the text of Christ, we ask you to continue doing your good work in us, move us, teach us, 
Lead us toward righteous living. By the Spirit of Christ at work in us. See that we are becoming more like your Son. Let us pattern our lives after Christ. May there be full-time joy in this place here. No murmuring, arguing in the community. See that unity exists here by way of humility. Let this church serve as lights to a world of darkness. May our lives, Lord, become blameless and harmless as we seek to show others the value of living in Christ. Let us rejoice and and be glad in the gospel advancement. Father, I pray that hardship nor trial nor pain would steer us away from rejoicing in your gospel work. But remind us as we've come to see already to this point in the book of Philippians that suffering is part of this gospel. In all things, Lord, see that we become a people who hold fast the word of life. Until the return of Christ, may your word dwell richly in us and may it flow out of a heart that harbors your word that we might glorify you with our lives. To you, Lord, be glory and honor all our days. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'd like to begin our our time this morning as we're looking this morning at 12 through 18 in the text. I'd like to turn our attention to uh, a set of Proverbs. Proverbs are two of my favorite ones, actually. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you... Also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Do not answer. Do answer. There's discernment, isn't there, that's needed to know when to answer, when not to answer. Don't do this, do this. Discernment is needed in our lives to know when we're to do certain things and when it's best not to do certain things. Anyone here ever have any challenge discerning what to do, what not to do, In this life. Anybody? Absolutely. Yeah. What to do. What not to do. It can be sort of a difficulty. Depending upon the context you might find yourself in. But I want to give you some good news up front this morning. As we think about those Proverbs. And think about this working title for the message. What to do, what not to do comes into a little bit more clarity 
When we have Christ as our example. When Christ is our example, knowing what to do and what not to do helps tremendously. For those who don't receive and believe Christ as their Lord and Savior, isn't it amazing to think about how they go about figuring these things out? What to do, what not to do. It comes down to, really, for many of them, whatever seems, feels right to them. But we've been given an example. We've been given a pattern. Christ. Having just traced the humility of Christ as an example to follow in verses 5 through 11. A humility, remember, a humility that resulted in laying down his life and dying on cross, a shameful, humiliating cross. The text now turns to apply what we just learned. The the text in many ways here in 12 through 18 is applying what we just learned and heard as fact about Christ, our suffering servant, the one who was willing to go low on our behalf. Christ obeyed the will of his Father. And that will led Christ to a cross. He paid it all, truly he did. But it didn't end on the cross. He was buried, according to the scriptures, and three days later he was raised. Forty days after that, he ascended to return to his Father. And God, as a result of his son's death... Highly exalted him, gave him the name that stands far above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. We talked about that last week. Every knee, everyone that you can think of in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every knee, every tongue, confess. What's every tongue going to confess? Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's coming. And then we read in the text, therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved. Paul is connecting, listen, he's connecting Christ's obedience to the Father with the church. He's wanting the church to see there is a direct connection between Christ's obedience to his Father and church, your obedience to the Heavenly Father. Okay? Jesus obeyed his Father. And so must we. That's really simplistic. I mean, just boil things down to to simplicity. Jesus obeyed his Father, and so must we. We're called to the same obedience to the Father. He's going to draw out what such an obedience looks like in the child of God. Remember what Paul has been addressing here, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves as citizens of of heaven here in this world. Be gospel-minded citizens all the way to the end, whatever the cost might be. Share your lives together, stand together, strive together for the faith of the gospel. So as Christ practiced obedience to his Father, how does that then connect with our lives today? And that's 
the big idea. Jesus obeyed his Father, and so must we. The question we're looking at then is, what then does this obedience to the Father look like for the children of God? And I'm intentional about saying for the children of God because in many ways this exhortation that's here in 12 through 18 is intended for the community of God's people. It's not just intended for individuals. Albeit that's how it ends up being the community. It's it's a group of individuals. But for example, when he says to work out your salvation, work out your, that's plural. Work out your salvation, church. This is something we do together. What does this obedience to the Father look like for the children of God? So there's five here in the text. I didn't make these up. They all come from the text. I put the references over here. Okay, Didn't make them up. They're right in the text, which is where they need to be. The main points need to come from the text. All right? So this first one, obedience to the Father. Obedience to the Father does not need an audience. An audience does not need an audience. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, In my absence. Listen, obedience comes as a result of listening. The word actually has embedded in it a preposition which inclines towards submission. Um, Akuo, to hear, is strengthened as the result of one, in this case God, through his word, he's speaking. (laughs) We think about commandment number five. And commandment number five says that we are to honor, right? Honor whom? Who are we to honor? Our father and our mother. Honor your father and your mother. One of the greatest ways to show honor to them is through obedience. Through obedience. The obedience that's called for toward your parents is what God desires. This obedience comes not simply by way of doing what they say, but doing what they say out of submission to God and his word. It's what we know as as unto the Lord. We obey our parents as unto the Lord. As Ephesians 6, 1 says, for this is right. That's why we do it. It's his way. And therefore, we submit ourselves to walk in accordance to his commands. Now, the pattern we see from the church at Philippi is extraordinary. Paul says, as you have always obeyed. Isn't that amazing? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. That's the track record for the church to whom he's writing. Lives exhibited by obedience to God and his word. That ought to be our desire, church. When Paul had been in their company, he's noted their obedience. But I want you to notice something here at the beginning of verse 12. Paul is emphasizing not their obedience in his presence, but obedience in his absence. Obedience in the present. He says, but now... But now, much more. 
Obedience in the present meant obedience apart from Paul's watchful eye. For Paul, as he writes, is where? Where is he? He's in prison. Thus his absence. He's not there among them. The call here, in light of his own absence, is for the church to practice obedience while he's not around. Obedience to the Father does not need an audience. How easy it is to externally, outwardly obey when dad and mom is watching. And yet the moment dad and mom is not watching... Obedience, for some, is up for grabs. It turns into an option. It gravitates toward how I might be feeling at that moment as to whether I'll still obey or not. I mean, after all, they're not watching. When you're in your car... And you encounter a police car tucked away behind a clump of trees alongside the road. What's your natural response? Hit the brake? Let off the the gas? Let me ask you this question. Why is there a certain response mechanism that goes off when you encounter a police car by the road. I believe this practical example here speaks to obedience in a great way. See, whether you ever verbalize it or not, you are acknowledging with your response to that police car that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to operate your vehicle. You're acknowledging there's a speed limit and you are needing to perhaps recalibrate in the present to ensure you're not getting pulled over by that police officer. For some, there's a real fear and trembling with getting caught. Amen? For some. You equate that police car with getting a ticket. You equate that police car with having to pay a fine. You equate that police car with having to explain to your spouse or your children what happened. What would your driving look like if the police car followed you around wherever you drove. Think about that for just a moment. Right out of your driveway to wherever you're going, the police car is behind you. How might you drive knowing that law enforcement is trailing you? Let me ask this. What would it be like To have the Lord Jesus in your presence, watching you wherever you go. Would you be inclined toward obedience? Taking his word seriously? 
See, we've gotten away, perhaps, from our understanding of who God is. This, this concept in the scriptures, the proverb writer talks about it all the time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, this awe, this reverence of who he is. Listen, the Bible testifies that he is always watching us. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always watching us. As one of his children, he has granted to us his spirit to abide in us forever. His spirit in us, listen, is always recalibrating us toward the truth of Jesus Christ. Obedience to the Father does not need an audience. This is so important up front. So important. Obedience is not predicated on certain authority figures watching you. Obedience is to come from the heart. It's based upon a mind directed to please the Lord always. Always. Not just when someone's watching Our primary audience is the Lord, not man. And since our audience is the Lord, we need to recalibrate our obedience. He's always watching. Obedience to the Father does not. We're talking about what to do, what not to do. Obedience to the Father does not need an audience. But secondly... From the text, continuing in verse 12 and on into 13, we see that obedience to the Father does, does involve. What's it involve? It involves working out, working out, work out your own salvation. That's loaded right there, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Explanatory for in verse 13. That's important for us to understand. For, for, it's explaining what's come before. It's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out. Work in. Don't miss that in the text. Work out. Work in. Who's responsible, church, for working out your salvation? Who's responsible for working out your salvation? You are. You are. Your your brother or your sister isn't. Your dad and your mom isn't. Elders not. You are responsible to work out your salvation. Who's responsible for working in you, church? God. God's working in you. He's working in you. When we think about working out, we we think about getting some exercise, maybe. Lifting some weights. Expending some energy. 
physically demanding effort on our end. Now this particular text in verse 12, if taken the wrong way, can lead us down a slippery slope. I'd like to be really clear, if I could, for just a moment. When the text calls us to work out our salvation, it is not advocating at all that we have to work to do, we have have work to do to merit our own salvation. We don't work to gain our salvation. That's not what Paul's saying. Okay, let's be real clear. He's not saying that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's important we understand how we've come to have and receive this salvation. Listen, you can't work out enough to merit your salvation, friends. God has redeemed you and reconciled you to himself through his son's completed work at the cross. It's a finished work that he did. You added nothing to his work. (laughs) And yet isn't it interesting that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 that you, we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. There are good works we're to walk in. We're called to walk in good works. But church, let's be clear. The working out that's called for in the text here is not a working out to merit salvation. From beginning to end, salvation is God's work. Okay? It's important We're clear on this. Obedience to the Father does involve working out, but not the kind of working out that merits additional favor with God. You you can't add anything to what he's already started, 1 verse 6, he's already started in you. Nor can you love God more or love him. God can't love you any more or any less Then when he first set his affection upon you and rescued you from darkness and brought you into the light of his son. Let me give you something else to hold on to while we're just rattling off some things here. Romans chapter 8 begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. How does it end? There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Wonderful Romans 8 bookends for understanding What's happened? What God did. His work. The explanation for verse 12 comes in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we're called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And I believe this points backward in the text. It also points forward in the text. The end of verse 12, when it talks about with fear and trembling. It works backward, looking at the judgment to come in Christ. Remember, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. 
God's exalted his son and has given him the name above every name. There's judgment. There's a, this really speaks to judgment in verses 9, 10, and 11. Getting right with God, making sure I have a relationship with God through his son Jesus, because there's going to be a day when everyone's going to bow, everyone's going to confess. There's going to be a bit of fear and trembling here as we work out our salvation in light of that judgment. However, those of us in Christ need not fear as though, ah, ah, because we have what the hymn writer calls a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. See, that's, that's salvation's story. It's what he's done. It's his work. But I believe the end of 12, when we talk about fear and trembling, it also points forward to 13. It points forward to 13. And we see that this fear and trembling connects to the God who is working in us. I want you to see that verse 12 is a call to human responsibility before the Lord. I'd like you to see verse 13 as explaining our responsibility and placing it within the context of God's sovereignty. In other words, verse 12 speaks of personal responsibility before God to work out my own salvation all the way to the end. And verse 13 is God's enabling power that equips me to carry out my responsibility. There's this mystery, there's this tension, if you will, in the text that's not easily identifiable. And yet clearly there's responsibility called for on our end as children of the Heavenly Father. You've probably heard it said this way and talked about as free will, God's sovereignty. You ever heard that conversation before? Ever crop up in any of your conversations? And everybody, here's what they do. Here's the tendency. They crop up all of these verses for free will. And they crop up all of these verses over here for God's sovereignty. As though it's got to be one or the other. Listen. God is a big enough God. He can take what we do. He can take our choices, our responses, our actions. And if we look at 12 and 13, I think we see this pretty clearly. We're called to work out our salvation, this salvation that has been graciously granted to us. And we're called to work it out. Listen, working out this salvation has a lot more to do with the sanctification aspect of salvation than justification. He's already justified us. We don't add anything to that. We're working with him and partnering with him in this sanctification process. So yes, free will, we're working here, but we're working within what context? God. God's the context. His spirit working in us to will and to do. To will and to do. It's interesting when we think about to will, actually has in mind a desire. When we think about this, this call, this exhortation, this imperative that's here to work out. It really has in mind to, to work on to the finish. 
or to, to carry out to the goal. When he says to work out your own salvation, he, he's saying carry, this idea of working out has a mind to carry out something to its ultimate conclusion. I know we've got some math students in here. And I, th- I think math students can relate to this definition of what it is to work out. You think about something, some of you maybe are right now, any of you working on long division? Anybody in long division right now or just getting into division problems in math? Yeah, yeah. What do you do when you're confronted with a math problem? You work it out. You work it out. You, you carry it out all the way to its ultimate conclusion. You work it out. Some of you go, I don't like working it out. I don't like to, ha- I don't like to do that. It, it is work. When you do math, you're constantly working out the problem. I remember my math teachers growing up, and, and, and almost verbatim, all of them said this growing up in math. They always say, show your work. Do I have to? Show your work. In other words, work it out. Work it out. Work it out all the way to completion because the teacher wanted to see how you got from A to B to C. God is working in you by what means? When the text says it's God who works in you, church, who is it that works in us? That's named God. Holy Spirit. God is working in you by means of the Holy Spirit. His mighty power is at work in you. When it says both to will, that's a desire. He gives you the desire, but notice he doesn't leave you hanging with just having a desire. It's to will, to desire. He also grants the do. The ability to carry out the work. I want you to notice in the text, his willing, his doing in you, it's directed toward what end? Toward what final conclusion? What's, what's he about as he's working in you? He's about pleasing God. Do you see this? Work out your own salvation. Do this with fear and trembling, understanding the explanation comes in 13. For it's God who's working in you. What's he working in you? He's working in you both to will, to desire things of God, but also giving you the energy, giving you the the ability to work it out all the way to the end that you might please God with your life. Isn't that great? You don't have to do this on your own. Obedience to the Father does not need an audience, but does involve working out, taking your salvation seriously, not neglecting so great a salvation. What else does the text teach us? Obedience to the Father, here's number three, does not, oh, this is a biggie, does not grumble and argue. 
Do all things without complaining and disputing. That, here's the result clause, here's here's the reason why, verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here's, a, here's a, a real simple action step for each of you this week. Try this. Try it for one day. See, and, and, and this, is, this is where the, the accountability of the family will help you, okay? But I want you to practice, just try one day this week. One day to see if it's possible for you to make it through 24 hours of your day without... Complaining, grumbling, arguing. Give it a whirl. See if you can do it. 24 hours. That, that's probably a lot. Or maybe I should just say like a couple hours, like an afternoon. But I'm going to shoot for a high bar here. Listen. Obedience to the Father does not, does not manifest itself in grumbling, complaining, arguing. When you look at the text and you see that word complaining there in the New King James, uh, really that word is, uh, is a word that's used in the, in the, the Greek uh, Old Testament uh, on several occasions. It's the word We've come to know, as we studied the Old Testament a little bit earlier this summer, murmurings. Murmurings. That's that stuff you say you, you don't, under your breath. You don't say it all. You don't. They may not hear what you're saying, but you're, you're, you don't like what's going on. And you show it by your body language. Murmurings. It's what the children of God did when they were wandering around in the wilderness. Remember that? God had done all these wonderful things, and, and in the very next chapter, what are they doing? Complaining. I don't have any meat. Give us meat. Remember? And on and on. I don't have any water. I'm thirsty. Wah, wah, wah. But you know, it's sort of funny to think that, but... It's not so funny when we stop to realize that we do a lot of the same thing. Remember what the context is that Paul's writing here. Has he not been talking about unity? How is it that unity can exist in the community of God when complaining and disputing or arguing is going on? Doesn't that just by itself, doesn't that just like throw, throw a bucket of water on any unity that God has called for? And, and, and remember, how does unity come about? What, what have we learned already about this unity? Unity comes by way of humility. Unity comes by way of going low, of looking out for others' interests. 
when you are more concerned about complaining. By the way, a complaining spirit, a murmuring spirit, is someone who is characterized by discontentment. Is that someone, you've heard them, I'm sure you have. Maybe you've heard them in your own home. It's not fair. They're they're just upset because they don't have something that you have. And little ones, this could be something real practical like a toy that you like to play with. I want it! Now, you may not say that, but by your actions, that's what you are communicating. A complaining, bickering spirit. There's the song, and I'm I'm sure many of you know the song. Steve Green, right? Do everything without complaining, everything without arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. That's exactly where it comes from right here in the text. Blameless and harmless. Harmless has in mind the unmixed. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Listen, he gives a reason why we're not to be arguing and complaining and murmuring. It may not be exactly what you expect to find on the back end of that. But what he says is the reason for why we're not to do this does not. See, obedience to Father does not participate in grumbling and arguing. Doesn't. And the reason it doesn't, according to the text, is so that you might actually stand out as one of God's children. In other words, if you do grumble and argue, you don't look a whole lot like one of God's children. It's pretty simple to just kind of... If, if you think, on oh, what are we doing or what are we not going to do? The text helps us here. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom you shine. There's a play on words here a bit as we think about shine and think about lights. When you think about shine and you think about lights in the world, uh, really thinking about the, uh, the heavenly uh, bodies. When we think when it's dark out, I was talking to the family this week and was, was asking them, it was nighttime, we were having our family worship time, and I said, you know, the, the stars that are out and the moon that's out, it's set in the, in the backdrop of what? Darkness. You see it. When you look up into the sky, you see the lights. And here he's talking about this this whole idea of why we're not to grumble, why we're not to argue, so that we might become something he desires for us to be, right? That we might be, he says, lights. The idea is that we're to shine as lights in the world. Listen. If you've looked around you at all in this world, it ought not be too awfully hard or difficult to shine as a light in this dark world. This world around us is quite perverse and crooked. Isn't it? So think about this 24-hour exercise I gave you. 
the importance of practicing this and making this habit forming in our lives that we don't get to the point where we're always complaining and arguing and bickering about stuff. Because remember, when we do, we lose, we lose our witness. We lose who it is God says we're to be. It's sort of like in the gospel in Matthew chapter 5. You remember when Jesus says that you are what? You are the light of the world. Now, in John's gospel, we read that Jesus himself is the light of the world. I am the light. We're called to walk in his light. And listen, friends, when we are arguing and bickering, we are operating much like the dark world around us. It's pretty clear. Shining like lights, as lights in the world. One other thing about this light, and we'll move on in the text, that I think is important for us to understand. God desires that we, his children, shine as lights in the world. When we think about this, this idea of lights. We're, we're to be, one writer says, we're to be like luminaries in the world. Luminaries. We're to, we're to be to other people in the world lights. And so these lights not only are visible to other people, but these, by the way, that's a side note in and of itself. Are you just cloistered in your own home, doing your own thing? Are you ever visible to anyone else to see? Shining as lights in the world means they can see you. They can see you. And listen, one of the other things a light does, we think about, I think about a lighthouse, right? And I think what a lighthouse does is it points the way. It provides a sort of a guide, And every single one of us, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, working out our salvation as he's working in us, both to do and to will according to his good pleasure, every single one of us is commissioned to be light and to be readily available to tell someone else about this good news, pointing them to the one we profess as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we a light in that way, church? Obedience to the Father does not grumble or complain. Keep reading in the text. Obedience to the Father, verse 16, does hold fast the word of Life. Some of you probably already filled in the blank because it comes right from the Bible. It's right there. I love it when it happens that way. You don't have to make it up. It's right there. It's in the Bible. Obedience to the Father does. Remember, we're looking at what to do, what not to do. And praise God, we have Christ as our example. And the text is speaking to some things we need to be doing. The text is also speaking to some things we're not to be doing. Right here in verse 16, here's something we need to be doing. Here's something we need to be doing all the time. Holding fast the word of life. This word of life can have in mind this word that produces life. This word which is life. This word which is the source of Life really can have all of those connotations attached to it. 
And really the rendering in the New King James, the sentence continues, doesn't it? If you have New King James. Some of your translations may actually start out with a, a new sentence. And grammatically, either one is actually appropriate. So you could take verse 16 as a, as a beginning point for a new sentence. Hold fast the word of life. So that, he's going to give you a reason why. Here's why. So that I, Paul says, so that I may rejoice, or so that I may boast, maybe some of your translations say, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Paul's looking forward, isn't he? Because Paul, as as we've seen already, Paul is all about helping the church understand the eternal significance of things. He's saying, hold fast the word of life so that I may boast in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. You know, we think about this aspect of running and laboring hard work. To do those things in vain. The word vain is is the word we've already encountered in last week's message talking about how Christ emptied himself. That's really the idea behind this word is is, talking about in vain, for nothing. Paul's saying, I want to be able to rejoice in you. I want to be able to know in the day of Christ, I want to be able to know that that my race does not run in vain. In other words, his hope and his desire and his longing is that there would be much fruit born in that church's life. And that ought to be our prayer for this church. That there's much fruit born out of the days we have been given by God. You know, when you invest time in people, and some of you in here know exactly what I'm talking about. You've invested lots of your time, lots of your energies in people who are close to you. People that you love. Friends, family members. People that you have gone out of your way to see that they get the gospel. They get this message of Jesus Christ. And it's your desire and it's your hope that one day, and you may not see it here. I love the song, Should the Harvest Never Come. I still will praise you. We may not see that harvest in our lifetime. But one day, Paul's saying, I'm hoping that in that day of Christ, I'm hoping, I'm praying that I've not run or labored in vain. I'm hoping as I hold fast and hold forth, the idea of holding fast has in mind even holding out as to offer someone. And it fits perfectly into what our role is as we work out our salvation, as we think about ourselves as lights in this dark world. Because truly, there's not a one of us here who can make someone follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What can we do? What are we called to do? We're called to offer his word. We're called to invite them. But truly, we can't do it for them. They must believe and they must receive just as we did. But it's our responsibility to hold it fast, to put it forth as an offer of something that is wonderful and transforming that will change their lives from this day forward. Holding fast the word of life. And church, just as a side note on this before we move to the last point. 
the importance of holding fast the word of life isn't only to be extended to someone else. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't extend this word of life to others is because we've not first taken his word in and received his word as it's intended to be received in our lives. Do we, as the, as the, as the Psalm and Proverbs writers talk about all the time, rejoicing? You know, we, we were talking about this in our, in our family this week and it's going to continue into next week, this verse from Psalm 119. And it, it talks about this very thing. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Is that the mentality that we have, church, in regard to his word? Because whatever we believe and think about God's word, if we don't hold it in high view and high estimation in our own hearts, more likely than not, we're not going to be extending it forward to other people as the word of truth. Well, last, we think about obedience to the Father. Obedience to the Father does not need an audience. It does involve working out. It does not include grumbling and arguing. And as we just heard, it does hold fast the word of life. And finally, we think number five here as we look at the last two verses. It does rejoice when the gospel advances. It does rejoice when the gospel advances. That's the last two verses here of the text. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. I want you to see here in the text that Paul doesn't rejoice only when things go right for him. Paul doesn't rejoice only when good things happen to the Philippians. He's, his rejoicing is not predicated upon things always going his way. Obedience to the Father happens when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. When we are consumed in giving God glory. Obedience to the Father may include wonderful mountaintop experiences in our lives for sure. But it will most often take us through... Some painful, challenging valleys as well. How many of you have encountered some of those painful, challenging valleys? We know about them. We've been through them. We're currently walking through them. Don't equate the hurt, the pain, the disappointments. Don't be too quick to dismiss these as God's necessary instruments to draw you closer to himself. That's what he's wanting to do. He doesn't waste our painful experiences. And Paul is seen here in the text rejoicing. Remember, he's in prison. He's not concerned about preserving his own life. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. What tipped the scales? It was gain. It was... He was going to stay. It's more needful for you. He's thinking of others' best interests. More needful for you that I remain. And if I remain, it's going to mean fruitful labor. 
I'm going to be be working hard at this. I'm going to work out my salvation as God's working in me to carry out his good pleasure. He's not about preserving his own life. Nor is he stressed about the church at Philippi that that they tiptoe their way through their days avoiding trials and difficulties. He carries with him a focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's come to realize that his obedience to the Father, which is the pattern of Christ's obedience to his Father, this obedience results in rejoicing when the gospel is moved forward. I was thinking about that moving forward, and I was reminded of the battle of Iwo Jima. Fought on a tiny island. And and I remember reading about this uh, battle uh, a while back, and And the grueling efforts to gain ground on the island. Many lives were lost trying to secure this island for the United States. The Japanese, as you recall, had built numerous underground tunnels and trenches and and made it extremely difficult for U.S. forces to take the island. But slowly, incrementally, the U.S. gained ground, eventually placing that flag atop Mount Siribachi. Remember that picture? Claiming it as U.S. secured ground. Listen, real lives were lost trying to secure that ground. Trying to move forward toward the goal of establishing Iwo Jima as a foothold for further U.S. movement in the Pacific. And though many soldiers never return from this battle, the U.S. objective to secure the island succeeded. Paul is rejoicing here in the text. He's charging the church at Philippi to rejoice and be glad with him that the name of Jesus is advancing. Remember verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the advancement of the gospel. I'm in prison. It looks bad. Oh, but don't say woe is me because it's advanced the gospel. And Paul is calling them here to rejoice with him. The gospel is moving forward. And it might mean imprisonment. It might mean long-term persecution. It might mean suffering. It might even mean death. But when the gospel gains a foothold, when the word of life gets put into play, when the church collectively works out her salvation all the way to the end, when we all understand the objective of making Christ known, shining as lights and testifying to his wonderful work in us, when we live connected to the vine of Christ and abide in him, we bear much fruit for God's glory. We start to see progress. We start to see forward movement. And what a rejoicing when ground is gained. Whether in life or in death. For the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed the Father's will. He obeyed his Father. And so must we. Jesus' obedience took him to a cross. He died, church, that we might live. And when we understand what Jesus did for us and the extent to which he was willing to go on our behalf, how then can we neglect so great a salvation? How? How can we neglect 
such a great salvation. I was reading an article just recently by John Piper. And he was speaking to this neglecting of our salvation. He asked the question, what is it we're really neglecting when we neglect his salvation? He says, here's what he's saying when he says, don't neglect your salvation. Don't neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven and accepted and protected and strengthened and guided by Almighty God. Don't neglect the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross. Don't neglect the free gift of righteousness imputed by faith. Don't neglect the removal of God's wrath and the reconciled smile of God. Don't neglect the indwelling Holy Spirit and the fellowship and friendship of the living Christ. Don't neglect the radiance of God's glory in the face of Jesus. Don't neglect the free access to the throne of grace. Don't neglect the inexhaustible treasure of God's promises. This is indeed a great salvation. Amen? It is. How then can we profane him by our unfaithful living? How is it that we can settle any longer for mediocrity in this Christian life? How is it that we can go on grumbling and arguing amongst the brethren? How is it that we can lose sight of the goal and not concern ourselves with gaining ground for the sake of the gospel, no matter the cost? Is our Lord worth it or not, church? Is he worth it? Let's be about the work of gaining ground for the gospel's sake. And in everything we do, let's be asking how this impacts the advancement of the gospel. When confronted with what to do, what not to do, the Lord has given to us a pattern to follow in the person of Jesus Christ. He's given to us His promised Holy Spirit to teach us the right way to go. He's revealed His will to us in His Holy Word. We're not left, this is a big praise, church, we're not left guessing on what's expected of us as His children. And He's not left us here to do His will in our own strength either. The Spirit in us strengthens us and helps provide the do. The Spirit in us grants discernment and helps provide the don't. But he's called each one to be responsible in Christ. To work out his salvation he's already given to us. To work it out to its completion. To maximize what he's graciously given to us. What to do, what not to do. It just became a whole lot clearer. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Isn't that amazing? Christ himself was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, the text says, he became the author of eternal salvation to all, to all who obey him. To all who obey him, he became the author of eternal salvation. This church is the reason we need his word in us. It's the reason Psalm 119 is filled with those admonitions. Teach me, Lord. Teach me what it is to go your way, Lord. Make me go your way. Teach me. Teach me. And I believe 
in many ways, this text before us in chapter 2, 12 through 18, is advocating a very simple twofold principle. Disobedience to the Father is what not to do. Don't go there. Obedience to the Father is what to do. All the time. Every time. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold o'er my being. Absolute sway. I love that line in the song. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see. What do we want them to see? Christ only, always living in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us through your word this morning. I pray, Lord, for this church here at Hope in Christ, that our eyes would be set upon you, fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at your right hand, where he is now interceding on our behalf. Lord, thank you for this call toward obedience. I pray, Lord, it would be our heart's desire to obey you all the way to the finish line of our life. However many days we are given here, that we would commit to obeying you, holding fast this word of life, walking as children of light, doing away with grumbling and arguing and complaining, For to do that, Lord, is uncharacteristic of one of your children. Your children don't participate in those things. Grant us the wisdom and discernment, I pray, to know what to do, to know what not to do. As we desire to walk in obedience to your word, remind us always that our obedience to you adds to or takes away from the light to shine in this dark world. Adds to or takes away from our witness, our testimony as ambassadors of Christ. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit that we might walk in your ways all the way across the finish line of this race that you've set before us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.